if we were able to choose the point in human history in which to live our lives, I'm guessing that many of us, probably most of us, would choose now. Uh, Statistically, this is a very good time to be alive, especially if you live in a developed country like this one. Uh, We have access to better medical treatment. Uh, People are living longer. It wasn't that many generations ago that someone would retire and the chances are they would be dead within a few years. Now, uh, someone can retire and have decades of life ahead of them. Uh, We are wealthier. We have higher disposable income. We have better working conditions, more leisure time, uh, greater social mobility. That means if you are born into a poor family, you have a better chance of improving your lot. Child mortality rates are down. Homicide rates are down. Literacy is up. Uh, There's a greater range of social services and benefits available. In fact, up until the 19th century, those things didn't really exist in any uh, um, meaningful way. When you look at the progress that's been made over the course of human history, it becomes evident that human beings have never had it so good. And you'd think that all this would make us more relaxed and happy, content, uh, stress-free. But the truth is that we have become a very anxious society. Uh, We're obsessed with our own safety and security. In fact, we've become very prone to storing up in barns so that we might enjoy all the pleasures of life. We love our high standard of living and we've become very protective of it. The more we can save and invest and bump up our super, the better life will be. And when we retire, well, then we'll really be living. Wrong answer. Our society has confused having with being. We equate lots of things with a good life. We associate ease and comfort with fullness of life, but it's a pernicious lie that encourages us to focus on all the wrong things. And on this occasion, when Jesus was teaching, there was a man in the crowd who had clearly bought into that lie. Here's what he said. He said, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And we we might say, well, that's fair enough. There was obviously some family dispute about finances, and he wanted Jesus to to, uh, help resolve it. Uh, We're not told anything else about the man or his motives, but Jesus is the most perceptive and discerning person who has ever lived, and Jesus' answer makes it very clear that there was something wrong with that man's question. And even at first glance, we can see that. This man... uh, is face-to-face with the author of creation, and his greatest concern is the accumulation of wealth. Uh, He thinks that if he he loses his inheritance, he will lose a very great part of his life. It's as if he can see fullness of life slipping away from him with this elusive inheritance. And Jesus replies, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Now, this man was right to recognize in Jesus the authority to judge. But Jesus is not about to get involved in the petty squabbles of these two greedy brothers. Instead, Jesus reveals an attitude of heart that can drive a wedge between us and God, Uh, an attitude that can destroy our relationship with God. And he does it by telling this parable, the parable 
of the rich fool. Uh, Before we get into the parable itself, I just want to jump to verse 34. We didn't include it in our reading, but Jesus finishes this discourse about the accumulation of wealth with these words. He says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The things we treasure, the things we value, that's where our hearts will be. If our main aim in life is to be comfortable, to have a nice house and a nice car and a big lump sum to retire on so that we can enjoy life to the full, if that's our aim, if that's the thing we value, if that's our treasure, we don't love God, we love things. Because our hearts will follow our treasure. Our hearts will follow the things that we value. So what should we be aiming for in life? Well, I like to think that this might be obvious, but uh, perhaps it isn't, so let's spell it out. We should be aiming for a deeper, more intimate relationship with Jesus. We, sh- we, we, we should fully participate in the process of our sanctification. That is a process by which we become more and more like Jesus over the course of our whole lives. We should aim not just to build our own little kingdom, which is here today and gone tomorrow, but to build Jesus's eternal kingdom. We should aim to make disciples and see people's lives positively changed and transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. If these are the things we value, if these are our treasures, then our hearts will belong to Jesus. You know, I think probably the most important thing that I can do as a pastor is to keep pointing out week in, week out, the supreme value of having a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. As Christians, that has to be our greatest treasure. But it's a sad truth, and I speak for myself as well, uh, that we so often get our priorities wrong. Uh, We value all sorts of other things over and above our relationship with Jesus. Uh, Many Christians idolize their spouse or their kids, and we absolutely should love our families. I love mine dearly. But if all our eggs are in that basket, if that's our treasure, it's a false economy because the the best and most loving thing that we can do for our loved ones is to love Jesus. That's the best thing that we can do for those that we love, is to love Jesus. Because the more like Jesus we become, uh, the better it will be for our families and loved ones. The more like Jesus I can become, the, the, the better husband I can be, the better father I can be, the better friend I can be. And that is the same for all of us. That's why that needs to be our, our treasure, our greatest priority. That's a slight deviation because we're actually talking about valuing lots of things over and above God. And it's not the money itself. It's not the coins and the notes uh, or or even the things that we value. It's the quality of life, the ease and the comfort that they enable us to have, sometimes the prestige. Too often we value the good life above our relationship with God. And we can fall into this trap whether or not we're living the good life. Uh, Because if that's what we aspire to, if that's our ultimate goal, then that's where our heart will be, whether or not we've, we've got it yet. So Jesus told this parable as a warning to all those 
who have got their priorities wrong, which, by the way, is all of us. Who of us can honestly say that their uh, hopes and dreams, their desires, aspirations and goals are perfectly aligned with God's will for their life? So there's this conversation that takes place. And initially, Jesus responds to this man in the crowd who has brought up the subject of his inheritance. But then in verse 15, it says, he said to them, he said to the crowd, this parable is for everyone who was there listening, the whole crowd. This was a crowd of people in rural first century Palestine. The chances are most of them barely had enough to live on. The average person would have owned one spare garment, but not more. Uh, One disaster, a drought, an invasion, the outbreak of disease could spell total destruction. It was a fragile existence. Childbirth was quite dangerous for both mother and child. They knew virtually nothing about the causes of disease. You could get bad teeth, and that would be enough to kill you, and it would be a very long, slow, painful way to go. Yet Jesus' message about materialism and hoarding wealth and making comfort our treasure was relevant to that audience. It was relevant to that audience. How much more is it relevant to us? I can assure you that we have a lot more opportunity to store up in barns than the average person uh, in that original audience would have had. We can kid ourselves that this doesn't apply to us, but it really does. In my worst moments of self-deception, I can almost convince myself that I'm not materialistic because I don't like having a lot of things, a lot of stuff. I'm always trying to clear stuff out of the house. Uh, When Tissa and I first met 15 years ago, I could fit everything I owned neatly into the boot of my car, and I liked it that way. And Tissa's been very patient and gracious with my minimalistic mania. And I've learned not to ask the question, do we need this? Because the answer is always yes. (laughs) And I think to myself, well... I'm not materialistic because I don't like a lot of things. Except I am. Because I value experiential things. Travel and adventure and uh, unique experiences. And I have to be very careful that I keep those things in their proper place and they don't start becoming more of a treasure. We all have to to, to battle against these things. It's just another version of the, the good life. So Jesus told the parable of the rich fool, and it's basically a story about uh, a successful farmer who ends up with this huge amount of grain. So what does he do? He knocks down his barn, he builds bigger barns so that he can store all this grain, and he says to himself, great, I've got all this grain, it will last me for years, I can kick back and relax, I can eat, drink, and be merry. In other words, I can have the life I've always wanted, I can have this thing this goal that I've been aiming for. So why is the farmer such a fool? Well, it has nothing to do with his success. There's nothing wrong with being successful. If you can turn a $200,000 company into a $2 million company, you ought to be commended. It doesn't make you a fool. If you get a, um, a promotion and a pay rise, congratulations, that's a good thing. If you're a farmer and you have a hugely successful harvest, then again, 
That's a great thing. Give thanks to God. The problem doesn't lie with the farmer's success. The fool, uh, the rich fool is a fool because he's selfish and short-sighted. He values the idea of having comfort so much that it doesn't occur to him to do anything else with this wealth that he's accumulated. Uh, He's had a bumper harvest. He's now an even wealthier man. And all he can think to do is to eat, drink, and be merry. And I think it's fair to say that many Australians and people in the Western world fall into this trap. They set themselves up so that they can eat, drink, and be merry, uh, preferably this side of retirement, but if not, then certainly during retirement. For many, to live comfortably and enjoy life is their greatest goal. And we might say, well, what's wrong with that? Is that really so bad? Well, if this life is all there is, then actually it makes perfect sense. If there's no infinitely valuable God to enjoy forever, then I suppose uh, the priority would be to have the most pleasant and comfortable life possible, whatever that means. But there is a God and a resurrection and the opportunity for eternal life. And that brings us to the crux of this man's foolishness. He's so short-sighted that he can only think of the here and now. He thinks only of the pleasures of this life and nothing of the life to come. But as the psalmist points out, our life here now is little more than a breath. Psalm 144, the, the psalmist says, Lord, what are human beings that you care for them? Mere mortals that you think of them. They are like a breath. Their days are like a fleeting shadow. My life is but a breath. (gasps) And then there's eternity. The fool in the parable amassed all that wealth. And then he died that very night. But even if he'd lived to a ripe old age, it wouldn't make his attitude any less foolish. Whether he held on to his wealth and enjoyed it for a few hours or a few decades... What is that compared to eternity? He was a fool. He grew materially rich, but his heart was set on the treasure of a comfortable life. And it was over in an instant. Be it that night or 50 years down the line, it really doesn't matter. His life was demanded of him and his wealth could bring him no further benefit. And Jesus said, this is how it will be. This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich towards God. And here we see the antidote to this greedy, grabbing, selfish attitude, which says everything I have is for me and for my benefit. The antidote is to be rich towards God. We only see that phrase, this injunction to be rich towards God, uh, in this one place in the Bible. Uh, But what does it mean? Well, let me tell you firstly what it doesn't mean. This is not a message to Jesus' followers to give up all their worldly wealth. In the book of Acts, Luke himself describes a Christian community where most people seem to live in their own homes. Uh, It is not a sin to have money or property or possessions. It's not a sin to be wealthy. Nor is this a message against prudently saving for the future. The Bible encourages us to do so. Proverbs 6 says, uh, Go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider its ways and be wise. 
It has no commander, no overseer or ruler, yet it stores its provisions in the summer and gathers its food at harvest. There is nothing wrong with making wise financial decisions. There's nothing wrong with saving or investing or putting money away for the future. Uh, We should do those things. This is more to do with an attitude of heart. Being rich towards God is the opposite of being selfish and stingy and short-sighted. If the man in the parable had been rich towards God, if if God had been his treasure, he, he would have said, God, all of this is yours. Show me how I can express with my wealth that you are my treasure. Show me how I can use this wealth to glorify your name. How can I turn the prosperity of my fields into blessing for others? He would have begun to see the scope of the amazing ways that his wealth could be used. Jesus said, watch out. Watch out. This is a warning. A warning against something that's dangerous, something that's detrimental, something that can be fatal. Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. If that's where we're looking for life, we simply won't find it. True life comes from being rich towards God, who has, of course, been uh, unimaginably, infinitely rich towards each one of us. This is a sermon about loving Jesus and making Jesus our treasure. Because if we do that, we won't place the highest value on, on living a good, pleasant, comfortable life, whatever that means to us. If Jesus is our treasure, over time we will develop this natural inclination to be rich towards God. Now the thing is with a parable is that we are supposed to identify who we are in the parable. Well, in this parable, there's only two people. There's God and there's the rich fool. And we're not God, so that kind of narrows it down. All of us are guilty of unhealthy attitudes when it comes to wealth and material assets. We have to see that. We have to recognize that. Uh, Jesus had quite a lot to say about our attitude towards money and material wealth. It's an important topic uh, because this is often the area of our lives which is the last bastion to fall to the lordship of Jesus. Uh, of course, I preach about this from time to time. We're not uh, not excessively. We're not going on about it all the time. But every now and again, it comes up in the reading and, and we preach on it. I think the last time was about six months ago. Now, I'm not going to take this personally or uh, you know, as a, a, a direct indictment on that sermon. But over the last six months and maybe over the last year, the giving has dipped. The church has grown, but the giving has gone down slightly. And I think all of us need to ask ourselves the question, am I being rich towards God? I think there are lots of ways that we can be rich towards God, but today we're talking in financial terms. So let's uh, break the question down a bit. So we have the first slide. Am I giving? Am I giving regularly? Giving is an essential Christian discipline, and it ought to be a regular thing. Of course, the best way to do that is to uh, set up a regular bank transfer. That way it, it comes out at the beginning of the month. The first thing we do with our money is to, is to give to God. Um, 
That way, if your attendance is sporadic, at least your giving is consistent. Not that we want your attendance to be sporadic. We'd love you to be here every week, worshipping with us, fellowshipping with us, being built up in the faith, being sent out to tell the story of God's love. But regular giving is uh, an essential Christian discipline. Uh, The next thing, is my giving generous and sacrificial? If we're just giving a bit of loose change, we can't really say that we're being rich towards God. Sacrificial giving means making hard choices. In other words, what are we prepared to go without so that we can give? If we're giving an amount that makes absolutely no difference to the way we live our lives, we can't really say that that's sacrificial giving. The next thing, am I giving with the right motive? If we're giving because we think that God will give us back even more in return in financial terms, then we're completely missing the point. That would be a business transaction. We don't make business transactions with God. We don't... uh, believe in the prosperity gospel, that is that if you give to God, he's going to give you back 10 times the amount. That's not the reason we give. Uh, Or if you're giving because you feel guilty, don't do that. Uh, You won't be able to sustain it and you'll end up feeling resentful. We give because we love Jesus and we want to honor him with every area of our lives, including our finances. Don't give for any other reason. And just to say, you know, if you are new to this church, we don't expect people to be giving straight away. We want people to know, okay, this is our church. This is where we feel at home. This is where we uh, belong. Uh, this is where we're committed to. When you get to that stage, then that's the time to, to be thinking and praying about the appropriate giving. Next thing, is my giving joyful? Often when we give, we can think that we're doing the church or God a favor. Uh, But like all spiritual disciplines, it changes us for the better. It changes our hearts. It changes our outlook. Uh, It loosens the grip of materialism on our lives, and there's great freedom in that. So if we're giving for the right reasons, we actually find that it's a real joy to give, and it can change our complete uh, outlook. Today's message is very simple. Make Jesus your treasure and be rich towards God. It was an apt message for Jesus's original audience, most of whom would seem quite poor to us. It's an even more relevant message, I think, to us in this age, and this time, and this place. We live in an age of prosperity, especially here in the West, yet our anxiety makes us more prone than ever to storing up in barns, as if living an easy, comfortable life is all that matters. So I'm hoping that this parable, and please go back and read it again in your own time, I'm hoping that this parable will have a profound, heart-changing effect on us. I'm hoping that we will genuinely ask ourselves those questions and, and pray about it and think about it and respond appropriately. I'm hoping that our richness towards God will noticeably and substantially increase the level of our giving. Not that we're giving for giving sake. It, it, we, we want to build God's kingdom. And the reality is we need finances to do that. We need prayer and we need people and we need commitment and we need all those other things as well. But we need finances. We need people to buy in with every area of their lives. So please 
Don't treat this as if it doesn't apply to you. Often I think when this kind of sermon is treat, uh, preached, uh, we tend to think of the reasons, the, the get-out clauses, why this doesn't apply to us, why it applies to everybody else but not us. You know when you have a meal out with a group of friends or uh, work colleagues and there's always that person who leaves slightly early and you end up picking up their share of the bill? Don't be that person. If we're going to keep this thing moving forwards, we all need to engage with this. The amount you're giving might be very little. You'll notice I've not said anything about amounts. I've not said anything about percentages. Because really, this is a a matter of principle. Are we giving? Are we giving regularly? Are we giving sacrificially, whatever that means for us and our personal circumstances? Are we giving with the right motives? Are we giving joyfully? Those are the principles that count. So the amount you're giving might be very little depending on your circumstances, but don't allow that to stop you giving. Don't allow that to stop you being generous with what you do have. There's a tendency, isn't there, to think, well, you know, when I get to this stage financially, then I'll be able to start giving. But actually you won't. If we don't give, you know, if we've got a little and we're not giving out of that, when we've got a lot, we'll be no more generous. Because generous, generosity is not about what we have in the bank. Generosity is, is, a, is a heart matter. It's a state of our hearts. And uh, we can grow in that. But uh, we have to start somewhere. So let's make Jesus our treasure. Let's be rich towards God. And let's learn from the example of the rich fool whose life was demanded of him and his wealth ended up doing him no good whatsoever. It was no benefit to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is always, um, I think, a a tricky subject and uh, there's a a balance uh, when we're talking about these sort of things that we need to try and get. But we pray, Father, the, the, the key thing from all this is that we recognize uh, that everything we have is from you, that everything in the world belongs to you, and we want to see you glorified. We want to see you glorified in every area of our lives. Uh, we want to be changed and transformed, and we have to recognize that uh, for each and every one of us, materialism and the grip that it has on our lives is changing us as people. But we want to reverse that trend, Lord. We want to be changed by you and by your Holy Spirit. We want to be more giving, more generous. We want to be rich towards you, remembering that you have been rich towards us and and given us even your own son. Heavenly Father, we pray that this will sink in and that we won't just hear this word, but that we'll act on it, we'll respond to it. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.